0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Proverbs 24, 5 through 7, and Genesis 1, 26 through 28. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate he does not open his mouth. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, may I echo the same sentiment we've talked about. May we May we be humble. May we not assume that we've arrived, but that there's something further for us to learn, myself included. Father, may your words sink deeply into our hearts. May you you take it and press it deep into our souls. And Father, grant us repentance where necessary and strong faith Strong faith to live obediently for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, the entire book of Proverbs is essentially this idea. That King Solomon is teaching his son and, and also daughters, but particularly his son, how to be a wise Ruler. It's God teaching his people, again, especially his son, the act of dominion. How to be faithfully representing God in righteousness and wisdom. Today, as we come to the end of our series on Proverbs, My title is this, Men Were Meant for Dominion. Men were meant for dominion. We're going to talk about manhood, biblical manhood. Men were meant to bring order out of chaos. We were created to bring order out of chaos. We're meant to bring God's rulership, To every part of this earth, every last square inch. Next week we will talk more about God's rulership, his lordship. Men were meant to conquer, were created to bend the world to a particular will. We're meant to protect and provide. I was recently, uh, as probably in the past month, talking to Pastor Jeff, who said, the problem with when women around us figure out what men are supposed to be doing, then they know when we are failing. So ladies, please take good notes. The men around you need your help. <clears throat> Today, I'm going to kind of come right out the gate shooting here. Today is one of those days where prideful, weak, pathetic, effeminate men will get really insecure and mad at God, probably me, the elders, and continue making excuses for their sinful, weak walk as a man. But today is also a day when the humble And strong men in the Lord get challenged and rise to the challenge that God has given them. And they will go on to enjoy glory and the fruits of righteousness. And the reality is this. You get to choose which camp you will be in. With the word of God, I I want to draw a line for you in this matter. I want to recommend a few books to you. I think would be helpful. First book is this, it's, it's Good to Be a Man, by a guy named Michael Foster. A book called Family Shepherds, by Vodie Bachham. Another book called Reforming Marriage, by Doug Wilson. And another book by him, called Federal Husband. Those four books have had an extremely profound impact and help in my own life over this past year. Uh, particularly, It's Good to Be a Man... I know many of our church members have read that book and has made a striking difference in many of their lives. That particular sermon or that particular book has had a profound impact. I'll be quoting Foster a good bit. Let's talk about our current plight. Let me give you some statistics. I don't normally do this, but Rusty did it last week, so I thought I'd follow suit and give you some statistics. Out of fatherless homes... Fatherless homes account for 63% of youth suicides. Fatherless homes account for 90% of youth homelessness and runaways. They account for 85% of youth behavior disorders. Fatherless homes account for 80% of rapists and anger issues. Fatherless homes account for 71% of all high school dropouts. Fatherless homes account for 75% of youth patients in chemical abuse centers. Fatherless homes account for 85% of all youths in prison. The father was meant for dominion. And when there is a lack of godly dominion, chaos erupts. As Doug Wilson is fond of saying, it is Christ." or chaos it is christ's way or it is chaos and those statistics reveal chaos in a christless place listen we we live in a culture of soft weak men men raised by women to act like women in a culture ran by women soft gentle quiet passive nurturing Men are taught to view their aggressive instincts as a result of the fall. And to paraphrase Foster, men are taught that they're simply a defective woman. Men nurtured to be perpetual children, never taking responsibility for themselves, never taking responsibility for their families, just big kids in an ever wrinkling body. You could be 25 and such, or 85 and such. Soft men who blame everyone else around them, especially the strong men and mature men, for their own failures. Soft men who don't confront issues, but instead passively hold on to grudges and bitterness like a pansy. Soft men who are ruled by their emotions And subsequently murder anything objective, truthful, logical, or reasonable. This is our plight. This is the culture around the church. And in many churches, the dominant culture. And we're not... uh, we We have not gone without being impacted by this ourselves. Many of us don't realize, even us men, how, how uh, indoctrinated we've become with the world's view, the, the world's current view of masculinity. You see, we live in a culture at war against masculinity, at war, at utter war against God's Definition of masculinity. Now, I want to use a term, introduce you to a term for many of you that our culture, I think, misunderstands, that our culture changes, that our culture uses, has made bad, and that's the term patriarchy. I think it's a misunderstood term, usually defined as something like, that is, those are men who are abusive, those are, women, those are men who just make women do whatever they want. They just rule, and they're selfish, and they're hurtful, and they're, in the popular term today, they're oppressive. Men who, in other words, subjugate women. Now, there are certainly evil patriarchies. There are evil patriarchs. More on that in a bit. But godly patriarchy is a good thing. Father Abraham was a patriarch. Moses was a patriarch. David, a patriarch. Jesus, a patriarch. Patriarchy is kind of another word for the idea of father rule. Again, I know these words like push hard against our culture. I am happy but maybe trembling to do so. And it's men leading as they're intended to lead imaging the fatherly rulership of God. Patriarchy is recognizing unique differences between men and women, not simply roles, although certainly included, between men and women, but God's design for men and His purpose for men is different. It's unique And as we talked about a few weeks ago, God created women with a different, very unique abilities and roles and characteristics. Certainly there are overlaps and there are places that we're talking about generalizations, how God has generally made man and generally made women. He's made man as he exercises father rule to protect And to provide for the people around him, not just his household, but also in government and in the church. But our world can't stand certainly anything that's godly, but particularly godly patriarchy. Why? Because it's a threat. Let me quote Kevin DeYoung. He says, that's because patriarchy, rightly conceived, is not about the subjugation of women as much as it, about, as it is about the subjugation of the male aggression and male irresponsibility that runs wild when women are forced to be in charge because the men are nowhere to be found. What school or church or city center or rural hamlet is better off when fathers no longer rule? Where communities of women and children can no longer depend upon men to protect and provide? The result is not freedom and independence. The choice is not between patriarchy and enlightened democracy, but between patriarchy and anarchy. Those are the choices. End of Kevin DeYoung's quote. Listen, why? Why is this such a, why has our world been attacking? I mean, listen, this attack didn't start in the 50s and the 60s, okay? The attack started in Genesis 3. Why? Since men were created for dominion, conquest, rulership, protection, and provision, every man is a potential threat to the powers in existence foster and non said this because god made them to rule they are a threat to existing rule they go on to give kind of three ways i think is helpful as we diagnose our culture and what's happening in in the book he gives us Three ways that evil patriarchies tend to uh, use to uh, relegate um, useless, good, godly patriarchies. The three examples he gives, you can write these down, is to harness the men, pacify the men, or destroy the men. To harness them, to pacify them, or to destroy them. I will talk briefly, paraphrasing them on each one to harness the men. Like, why waste all the energy of those men? You can look at passages like Nebuchadnezzar. He did this in Daniel 1. You see this in more modern examples like Hitler and his youth. I mean, Hitler was an evil patriarchy, and he mobilized and harnessed the dominion and conquering uh, bent and power of the men in his day. You also see this in the woke train, making keyboard warriors out of soft mama boys. Harness the men. If you can't harness the men, pacify them. That's what Pharaoh did. You put them to work as slaves. Let me quote, men who are hooked up like junkies to the dopamine drip of virtual fornication and fake dominion are worthless for the task of being fruitful in real life and imposing genuine order on their worlds. Let me tell you what he's saying there. He's not saying there's, it's sinful to play video games where you're conquering and exercising dominion, but what he's saying is that for many men, the exercise of conquering and dominion through virtual reality scratches the itch just enough that it makes them useless in actual productive dominion for the good of their people around them, their neighbors and their family. So men, a practical application. Let me give you some teeth to this. If you play video games, that's great. That's fine. Make sure you're actually exercising dominion around you. And you're not being stuck with a pacifier by the video controller There are other things that can do this, too. Sports can do this, too. You can get the scratch for the itch in whatever sport or thing you give yourself to, that you, and you exercise dominion there, and it, it, it fulfills that God designed for you to exercise dominion that then when you go home, you're worthless. When you go to church, you're worthless, Pacify them. It's a great way for an evil patriarchy to destroy the men or to, to rid them, not, or render them not a threat. Third, destroy them. If you can't harness them or pacify them, you must destroy them. We're living in a world of fatherless, I'm quoting here, we're living in a world of fatherless males who don't know how to rebuild the walls of society. They've become clueless bastards. They know how to build, explore, and conquer in video games, they must, but they must turn to YouTube to learn how to jumpstart a car, tie a half Windsor knot, and do a push-up. End quote. In our culture, masculinity is shamed. Strong men are often vilified as toxic, abusive, domineering. I remember the sitcoms growing up. Anybody watch Home Improvement? Am I getting a little old here? Anybody not watch Home Improvement? Maybe that's the better question. All right, there we go. Here, I got one. Fathers are portrayed as unnecessary buffoons. Relegated to those who simply bring home the bacon, but everything else belongs to mom. Now, certainly, again, there are many men who are abusive, who are buffoons, and the like. But let me remind you and caution you that isn't discerned by someone else's feelings, no matter how large the mob is that agrees. Rather, what is appropriate and good and godly is discerned by the word. What's happening often, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine yesterday. But the same situation is good godly men being destroyed by evil patriarchies because some soft effeminate man got his feelings hurt. That's how you destroy a godly patriarchy. Harness them, pacify them, destroy them. That's how you render them useless church, listen, this is not just the city around us on fire. These struggles are true of many of us as well. This is true of many of our households. Some of us have been destroyed or pacified or harnessed by the evil rulers of our day. And if there's something you walk away with, men, today, I want you to walk away with this, and that is, God has given us the responsibility to do something about it. So why did God make men? Why did God make men, particularly males? I don't mean that in the generic sense. Genesis 1:26 through 28. We read that already, so I'm not going to reread it. But manhood, I would agree with Foster in this Phrase here that man was created for productive representative rulership. Productive representative rulership. I'm going to define those three terms very quickly. Rulership, meaning decision making, authority, responsibility, lordship. Decision making, authority. And remember, authority comes to those who take responsibility. But not just rulership. So it's not not just he gets to sit around and make decisions. But it's rulership that is productive. He's created to produce something with his rulership. His rulership is to go somewhere. It's to lead somewhere. It's to make some product. It's to bring about some consequence, some change. It's to bring about an effect. Thirdly, it's representative. The directives, the actions are not from the man nor about the man, but are to be from and for God alone, a holy and perfect God. A godly patriarch does not get to make decisions that just suit his own fancy. He doesn't get to produce a product just because he wants to. Those things are defined by God for God through his word for us to know and to live upon. Again, this means he doesn't get to rule to get what he wants. But the flip of this is also true he also doesn't get to rule and play for the, the desires of those under his leadership either. It's not his directives. And servant leadership doesn't look like those who follow that patriarch, his, their directives. It's God's directives and his directives alone. This is what it means to exercise dominion, to fruitfully order the world In God's stead, fruitfully order the world in God's stead. Foster said this man is made as a stand in ruler for God, a stand in. He acts on his behalf. Practically, this means that a man is to establish his own presence and rule in the appropriate way, in the places that God has put him. My call as a, as a man leading in this church is not to be a man leading in the church down the world, down the road. This is the realm he's put me, with its restraints, in this place. So I have a, an appropriate way to rule. Here And this is the place he's called me. This is the physical realm he's put me. Same thing with my family. I am to lead my family in a different way than I am to lead your family. So you men, I help you lead as an elder. But I don't lead your family like you're called to lead your family. And you don't lead my family in the way that I'm called to lead my family. And so on. So if you're looking at Genesis 2, there's two Key phrases in there, the idea of subdue and the idea of filling. The idea of subdue and filling. I'm, now, I'm not going to, like, juxtapose this with womanhood. I, I preached on that a few weeks ago. So I'd encourage you to go back. So I'm just going to keep driving towards masculinity. Man is to subdue the world. Now, we, we get a little uncomfortable here with this, with this. But subdue literally means to forcefully put down. Subdue means to literally, to forcefully put down. If you understand the context of Genesis, it's no different than the context today. The rest of the world outside the garden was dangerous and wild. Adam was to order it and shape it. He was to expand the garden of Eden. Now, now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that everything requires force. It doesn't mean that that Adam is to never be gentle and patient. Certainly, there there are times that that is good and appropriate. What our culture wants is for men to be gentle and patient in everything so that the culture can forcefully put down the men. But it means that he was created to exercise force, again, representatively, on behalf of God when necessary as men are to take the word of God and the power of the spirit and bring everything under the dominion of Jesus every last square inch finances parenting workplace government etc and bring everything under the, the dominion of Jesus their wives are to help them do this in their appropriate way Ephesians 1:22 and he put this is speaking of God as the pronouns referring to there put all things under his feet speaking of Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church so this is a picture of the rulership of Jesus Christ over all things, meaning every last molecule. How does this happen practically? So there's a sense in which this has already happened, but there is a sense in which this is to practically happen in, in our day. And in, in as we walk, it's from exercising dominion on God's behalf. In his way, defined his way. Foster said this, created with the desire to conquer and to subdue, to hew down and to build up, to form and to shape, you, meaning you men, yearn to bend the world to your will. Because Adam was created to bend the world to his will. But here's the problem we fight and struggle because. Majority of the day, us men want to bend the world to our will and not God's will alive in us, alive in us. You see that, picture all over our culture right now, but you see this all throughout the Bible, where men who were created to bend the world, to bring order out of chaos, instead of bringing it to what should be order defined god's way they want to bring it into what they think is best they want to put things in subjection underneath their feet when godly dominion by a man is to be bringing things under the subjection or under the feet of jesus And that's, that's crucial because here's what's happened. It's really easy for us to say this desire to hew down, to, to conquer, it's really easy. And what's being told to us right now is that that in and of itself is evil. You need to put that aside. You need to be more passive. You need to be more calm. You need to be more gentle. You need to be more like a nursing mother. But that is a godly, that, that way of, of desiring to bring order out of chaos, to exercise dominion is a God-given, necessary quality that he's given to men. The problem is not with that desire. The problem is the desire to bring everything into the dominion under our feet instead of the feet of Jesus. Don't throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. man is to subdue it man is to fill the earth next back to the garden adam isn't just created to squash disorder it's not just defeat the foes it's to build it's to it's to order it he's to tend the garden Not just break up the soil, not just cut back the thorns, but he's to tend the garden. He's to bring life to the garden. He's to sow seeds in orderly fashion under the rulership of God, his creator and Lord. Now, this happens in all of life. Fundamentally, here in Genesis, it happens in children. So God gives him Eve, but Adam's a part of that process. Adam is going to need more and more help to spread God's image and rulership across the earth, and so he will need to plant seeds that will fruit in the womb of his wife and a new soul, an image bearer, and future life giver, if it's a girl and future ruler, dominion If it's a man, and through these seeds planted, man, with the help of his wife, will spread God's dominion across the earth. Next, let's talk about pursuing manhood. Pursuing manhood. I don't know if you know this, but manhood does not happen naturally nor normally in our current culture nor has it arguably since genesis either we think often that one crosses into manhood at 18 or 21 that age keeps going up or when someone gets married that's a man or someone gets a car or starts a career or joins the military we have other markers those just being some of them when we start to consider someone a man But manhood only happens if a boy is loved and discipled by a father into manhood. Let me say that again. Manhood only happens if a boy is loved and discipled by a father into manhood. Now remember, God is the archetypal father. He chose his own pronoun. It's he, him. He's the archetypal father. Now, the journey is supposed to be sonship. I guess from your vantage point, sonship. Manhood, fatherhood, or husband, father. Son, man, husband, father. Again, you see in the Proverbs, Solomon is trying to help his son become a man. But in our culture, sons rarely ever embrace sonship, even if they have a father, and a godly father, or they don't have a father to help them be a son, so they don't reach manhood, but then they still might get married, or or more likely in our culture, have a kid first, and then get married. And maybe somewhere down the road, there's a measure of maturity. It's all screwed up. We must be a son, and hear me, to a godly father before you will ever become a godly man. Now, here's the reality. If God is the archetypal father, then only, listen, listen, listen. Only as we humbly place ourselves before him will he grow us in imaging and reflecting and representing him. And here's the deal. In order for us to humbly place ourselves, we have to learn the fear of the Lord. Fathers are meant to help us learn And see the fear of God. Foster, I think, rightly says this think about the differences practically, visibly, between men and women. A man's deeper and stronger commanding voice again, these are generalizations versus mom's softer, nurturing, and voice of comfort. Those are good things. God's designed us that way in general. A man's physical presence is one that compels submission and brings order in a different way than moms does. A man is a a force who brings comfort, he says, not by folding us into his body like a mother, but by subjecting us to his body. It is because he's dangerous that his family loves and feels safe with him. He can defend against everything that endangers their family. Again, I know like this just presses against everything that's pushing against those, these walls. Let me quote him word for word here. There are all sorts of sociological reasons for the power of fathers things that we can see around us. He says, but they boil down to the simple reality that human father's image... They image God the Father, just as Jesus, the representation and radiance of God, upholds all things by the word of his power, so human men, the image and glory of God, uphold their families, their houses, and their societies by the power entrusted to them in accordance with the word of God. We can't look, if we're going to, pursue manhood we can't keep looking in all the wrong places and expecting all the wrong trajectories many of us want to learn the easy way we continually cry please be gracious with me or we're eager to exercise authority but quick to accuse our own authorities quick to throw out whiny excuses and quick to find someone to agree with us. You can't learn manhood from the internet or from a book or even someone like Jordan Peterson. You might get glimpses of it. Instead, you should look to fathers in the flesh who will disciple you. So a question I'm sure some of you might have been asking, what if you didn't have the greatest father. Where do you go to be a son? If sonship precedes manhood, and learning to be a son, where does that happen at? It happens in the household of God. Where else would it happen? <laughs> it happens in the household of God. In the gospel, you become a son first. You're adopted. You become a son Of almighty God. The perfect father. So believing. Listen. Believing the gospel. Is the first and necessary step. To being a godly man. And then in the flesh. God has given pastors. And other spiritual leaders. In the church. For which you can place yourself under. As a son, Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, what for? To reach maturity. Yes, it's, that passage is applicable to both men and women, but it's certainly applicable in this context to you men. I think of, for me, Ike, I I have to place myself under the other elders around me I have to actively do that. Actively function at times like a son who is being instructed and taught and disciplined. In Titus 2 verse 6, it says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's a great passage on helping boys become men and girls become women. Titus 2. So let me ask you this question, men. Let's put some rubber to the road. Do you want to be a mature man, a mature, godly ruler? Then you need pastors who will shepherd and discipline you to help you grow in holy wisdom. Not a pastor or pastors or other disciple makers who will play patty cake with you and your sensitive emotions. Foster said this Do you think you're a mature man, but consider a pastor unnecessary or functionally live as like? What a man sows, so shall he reap. A child who spurns the correction of his father grows to be a fool. Why does this always happen? That's end, end quote. Why does this always happen? Because God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. And if God has said it so, God will not be mocked. His word will come true. He gives this caution. I would give to you as well. You need a pastor, not a hero. It can be easy to idolize a man from afar, especially online, but real-world relationships reveal a man's imperfections. They reveal his failings and his sins, even. The idealist will resent a pastor who is a real man. He desires a hero to emulate, a man who never disappoints him. But no such man exists in the real world with the exception of the God-man. Let me give you one last exhortation. Underneath, do you want to be a mature man? You must go actively place yourself under discipleship. You must take responsibility to first place yourself as a son. You will never be a man, not the man your wife needs, not the man your kids need, not the man your, the society around us needs. You will not be that unless you make yourself, place yourself, take, your, take responsibility to be a son first. You have to own it. Now here's the encouraging thing. Is that God has made you to do this. God has created you to first be a son. He made us this way. But Romans 1 tells us we suppress this reality. We suppress all truth. We're truth suppressors. So if you're struggling to be a son it's because you're a truth suppressor. You're suppressing the truth. The only way out of that pit is repentance and faith. It's the only way. But it's a gracious and merciful way. Next, as you're pursuing man, man Foster uses this term, he uses this term gravitas. And I have gravitated towards this term because it's really helpful. Gravitas. Get gravitas. So what does manhood look like? looks like lots of things. I think the idea of gravitas is really helpful. This idea is even present in our role description for our elders, is that they lead by the weight of their character, They lead by the weight of the the gravitas of their character. Here's a definition. Gravitas is the fruit of glory. Gravitas is the fruit, or it's the, the feat, the practical outworking of glory. It's the product of weightiness. It's the consequence of weightiness. It's the feat of glory. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. What's, What's the psalmist saying? He's saying that the heavens, this expanse above us, declares the glory of God. What's that mean? It declares the weightiness of God, the magnificence of God, the greatness and the honor and the heaviness of God. Just think about it. I spent two weeks at the ocean. The same thing could be said of the ocean. When you think about the waves crashing, powerful. I mean, water weighs eight pounds per gallon. How many gallons are crashing in a single 20 foot wave? I don't know. Go do the math, but it's a lot. It crashes. And it hurts sometimes too. Just like Aslan the expanse of the sky, the depth of the ocean, the magnificence of a volcano, they show the incredible, incomprehensible weightiness of God. That's his glory. Then you go to a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. It says, for a man ought not, and he means a man here because he talks about women in a second. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. I'm not going to have time to, to dive into all this. I, did, I treated this passage more a few weeks ago. But for right now to zero in on he is the image of the glory of God. What's that mean? It means that man is meant to be the image of the glory of God. Now, his wife and women are right along with him. But man is meant to image the glory of God. He's meant to be the flesh representation of that weightiness. Did you hear me? Man is meant to be God's glory in the flesh. That means a man is meant to be the weightiness of God. A man of God will have substance. Put it another way. He will be a man that like when you walk on the beach. Has anybody done that? Have walked on the beach? Come on, raise your hands. You all should get out more. Uh, You walk on the beach and you see your imprint in the sand. You see it there? You have weightiness. And as you walk, your footprints are left. That's the gravitas. It is is your presence making an impact on the place and the circumstances that you're in. Like that, man is meant to be this fleshly or this flesh representation of God. He's meant to leave this impression of God everywhere he goes, everything he says, every decision he makes. Men, you are, listen, men, you are given glory through your unity with Christ. But it is only as you live out that glory that you actually get gravitas. Only after you actually live out the image of Christ and His glory that your personhood has this kind of weight in God's church and His broader kingdom. It's only after you actually live and think like your creator that you're to image, that your words and your viewpoint even matter. I'll give you an illustration. My youngest two in the face of giant waves on the ocean. Henry's six and Winnie is four, so you can imagine their stature. Eight foot, ten foot tall. The waves were, were pretty intense on many of the days at the beach. Crashing upon them, like just knocking them down. But by God's grace, they have a little bit of wisdom And they generally stayed back in the more shallow waters without us having to be on top of them too much. They still enjoyed the wave. They were still knocked down, but they were in water that they could get out of. But then dad comes along and Henry begs to get on my back and wade out to the water that is substantially over his head. That is way more weighty than what he's experiencing in the twelve inches of water that he's been in. Especially when I'm in waves that are that when they come in, we him and I have to jump and float over top, or we have to just pull our heads down and plug our nose and go right through the wave but he was anxious to do this, begged me many, many times to go do this in the face of the gravitas of an incredible ocean. Why? Because my personhood as dad, my character in that moment as being trustworthy, made a difference. It had a gravitational pull towards dad. My presence was making an impression on the mind and the heart of my child such that he believes he can live and survive and even enjoy water that is way over his head. He knows that I'm bigger than him and he can trust me. That's gravitas. That is weightiness. That is leaving an impression like little footprints on his mind and his soul. See, gravitas is like a gravitational pull. You should have, man, a character that pulls people into a certain direction. That your presence, hear me, your presence in the life of the people around you should make a gravitational difference. Like the sun pulls and keeps the planets in order and orbit of our solar system. So should your presence and your actions and your words Bring order to the chaos and maintain order in the midst of chaos around you. Foster said this, it's what happens when you become proficient at reflecting the glory you were made to reflect. You get gravitas. Let's talk a little more practically. How do you get this gravitas? This is not something you are born with and it's not something you will stumble upon. You get it, of course, most foundationally by walking in repentance and faith with your Redeemer. And then as you live that out, it's by disciplining yourself to walk with the Lord, by walking with Jesus, by disciplining yourself to be a son under godly fathers, by disciplining yourself to more closely reflect the weightiness of our Father, who's perfect and good. The one whom you are the glory of. Paul tells Titus in Titus 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Calvin, commenting on this, says this, there should be a becoming gravity in the lives of elder men which should compel the young to modesty. The spiritual weight of these men should be such that their gravitational pull... Quotes, Draws younger men into a nearer orbit with God. Gravity pulls things into proper place. It brings and maintains order. Man, listen, it's only, and, and wives and women around these men, it is only as a man knows the character of God and his will for man that you will be able to accurately. Pursue the duties, develop the virtues that produce gravitas. So men, let's, let's dig in a little deeper here. You need to ask yourself, is there any gravitational pull around me? Are there any men or boys that are being drawn into right orbit around God because of my gravitas? Are there? You don't have to answer out loud right now, but you should ask that question. If you're married, is your wife being drawn into right orbit and order around God because of your leadership and presence, because of your gravitas? Or is she doing it in spite of your lack thereof? Is your workplace being pulled into right orbit and order because of your presence? Is your children, if you have kids, being pulled into right orbit and order because of your presence? Are your friends around you being pulled into right order and orbit around God because of your gravitas? Ask that question. Ask other godly men around you for their assessment. If you want to be a son, it's a great thing to go do. My last thing, and I'll move pretty quickly here through. So how does a man get godly gravitas? Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear and humility are connected. Fear and humility. One writer, her name's Karen Glass, she's writing on a, uh, an educator named Charlotte Mason, speaking about how one truly learns is the context here. She gives this example. She says, suppose I want to uh, arrive in Rome. She says, the first thing I need to do is to realize that I'm not in Rome. The second thing I need to realize is that it's going to take some energy expelled to actually get there. See, one who's not humble doesn't realize they're not actually in Rome. I want to get to Rome. I'm already in Rome. She goes on, the intellectual and moral journey requires a similar recognition as this. I want to have wisdom, I want to know, but I don't know yet. Or I don't know all there is to know. Men without any or very little gravitas realize, these these are my words, realize you are not in Rome and you're going to have to expend some energy to get to Rome. Back to the paraphrase. Again, this requires humility. It requires the fear of God. The condition of humility, knowing what we don't know, or knowing that we don't know, rather, must be in place. She gave this example. How many of us look at a worm and act as if there is nothing else to learn from that worm? How many of us look at that gruesome spider that's in our house that some of us men are afraid to go kill and you should become a man and go kill it? Um, How many of us look at that spider and go, there is, and functionally live as though there is nothing else for me to learn from that? I'm not saying you shouldn't go kill it. Maybe you should. I let mine live. My wife prefers I kill them. Uh, I mean, as long as he's not dropping on me on the couch, if he stays out of my way, I'll stay out of his way. There you go. But how many of us look at that as though there is nothing else to learn? At that point you've stopped learning. But to grow, to become a man requires humility, the condition of humility, knowing that we don't know. And as soon as she goes on, as soon as we shift to a position of knowing, we are no longer teachable. She quotes Alexander Pope, who is an 18th century poet. A little knowledge is a danger. A little learning puffs up, and we go no further. If I arrive in Italy, she says, and sit down and relax and pat myself on the back, thinking I've arrived because Rome is somewhere in Italy, my journey towards Rome has ended. Pride is a death nail to real virtue. To quote someone else, nothing is worse than those who have made some little progress beyond the first elements, and on the strength of this, are filled with a false idea of their knowledge. They've learned a little bit, and now, with a false confidence of arriving, they stop learning these are examples of what it means to not live in the fear of the Lord. That's why he talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of, it's not just the beginning of the journey of knowledge, it is that, but it's the beginning of every instance of acquiring knowledge. Every moment that you are to, in the face and the opportunity to acquire knowledge, it requires first the fear and humility of recognizing that I don't know. And that God does. So what does this fear of God look like in a man or a boy who wants to mature into a godly patriarch? Foster lists four. I'm going to use his four items here. First of all, a man who, fear, going to be, a man who fears the Lord does this. Okay, so that's the, and I'm going to give you the does this. A fear of the Lord, uh, a man who fears the Lord gives and receives instruction and rebuke. He gives and receives instruction and rebuke. So as to become more like his father. Right? God disciplines his children whom he loves, right? Hebrews. Proverbs 17:10. Listen to these words. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Take note of that one. Proverbs 9, 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. What's he saying? He's saying that a child, a fool, will scrape and claw and attack rightful rebuke and instruction. And we know that a fool will never become a man. Listen, a man who does not hear God hates and scoffs at anything that requires him to admit error or to change his ways. Let me quote Foster word for word here. This fragile vanity means he can never be intimately acquainted with God or his ways. He hasn't the patience or inclination to diligently search out what is right and true. He wants only to indulge and vindicate himself. End quote. But a man, listen, on the flip side, who fears God will hear instruction and rebuke and be willing when necessary to give instruction and rebuke all of it governed by the word of god because he is his representative next a man who fears the lord hates evil especially pride arrogance and perverted speech proverbs 25:14 like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give it's a prideful assessment and assertion of self. That kind of person is like a huge, ominous, scary cloud that has no rain nor thunder. Proverbs 18:4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. A man who speaks wise, truthful words is a man who fears the Lord and a man who will not put up with prideful, arrogant, untruthful speech, perverted speech. Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. These things grieve godly men, and they act with gravitas. Third, a man who fears the Lord is content to be made low. He's content to be made low because he understands how he compares to God. He's content to be made low because he understands his, his place before God, how he compares to God. Romans 12. Go read Romans 12. It's been a verse I go back to many times in my life where it says that one should have a correct estimation of oneself. A godly man who will grow into godly gravitas is content to be made low. He isn't seeking to maintain his great name, but the name of the one whom he represents. He will defend it to the death. Lastly, a man who fears the Lord trusts the Lord. He trusts the Lord. Proverbs sixteen nine says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. A godly man, one who fears the Lord, trusts the Lord. On the contrary, a fool fears man, fears life, fears circumstances more than he fears God. And so he trusts in others and trusts ultimately in himself. But this man... The man growing into godly gravitas believes that the Lord is sovereign over every last molecule and he walks diligently and confidently behind the Lord. Let me quote. Because his refuge is God, he is firm even in crisis or poverty and his children, wife, and Let me add, those others around him can take refuge in him. He is a true patriarch because he is the son of a true patriarch. This is a godly man. One who understands the gravitas of God. And as such, he is drawn into God's orbit. Where he images the glory of God drawing others into God's dominion around him. Let me say that again. A godly man, a godly patron, is one who understands the gravitas of God, and as such, he is drawn into God's orbit, where he then images the glory and the gravitas of God drawing others into God's dominion around him. One last quote. Calvin says that gravitas is procured by well-regulated morals. I'm gonna read this slow. I want you to take this in. It's procured by well-regulated self-discipline, self-governance. To discern between good and evil, between wisdom and foolishness, is to have the foundation of gravitas. The grave man is a man who has learned wisdom. He has trained himself in rightly judging and ordering both himself and his world. His very presence exerts force that orders those around him. He is a bulwark against chaos. But the inverse is equally true. A society Lacking in grave men is a society abundant in social disorder. Listen, this was 500 years ago. A society abundant in social disorder. Men without gravity are, consciously or not, agents of chaos. Calvin observes, nothing is more shameful and for an old man to indulge in youthful wantonness and by his countenance to strengthen the impudence of the young. Who he saying it's Christ or chaos. It's either godly patriarchy with a gravitational pull towards the glory of God or you are an agent of chaos in your home, your workplace, your church, your society. Those are the two options. So I would ask you men, are you an agent of chaos in your family, workplace, church, neighborhood? Are you an agent of chaos? Or are you a man of godly glory with gravitas pulling others around you into right orbit around Christ the Lord? Does your presence mean something of godly value? Do your words mean something of godly value to those around you? Is there a weightiness to your presence in your family, in your church? Again, here's the beauty. It begins with repentance and faith in the gospel Of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ where you and I can confess all of our failings at imaging the glory of God and see them all pardoned by his grace and mercy only as we humble ourselves men and walk in repentance and faith listen the reality is, is upon the work of the gospel in our hearts, we get the glory of Jesus. It's a gift given to us by grace and his mercy. It's ours. You don't have to go looking for that. It's already there. It's yours. By repentance and faith, we stop suppressing that reality and seeking to know the one whom we represent. It's then that we will begin to image the glory of God and grow into mature manhood. Listen, men, you were meant, you were created for godly dominion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I I recognize that your word does not leave any of us neutral. We will walk out of here either loving you more in humility and repentance and faith, or we will walk out of here hating you more, making excuses for our sinfulness. Father, I pray that you would give the men of this church the grace and mercy to walk in the way that you've created them to, in humility, seeking the face of Jesus, in the fear of God, exercising rightful dominion in the places you've put them, that you would empower them, that you'd help them to stop being distracted. For those that have been destroyed by our world, that you would restore them. For those who have been pacified, that you would take it out of their mouths and give them real glory. That they would live in a way that we could taste and see your rightful dominion in this physical place as you establish your kingdom for us to enjoy forever. I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.